Hello, and welcome to the Rainy Book Nook Podcast. Of course, this is episode one, so I just want to start off by saying this is probably going to be a little rough, and that's okay. I've tried this intro 50 times already, at least. I just decided, let's go with whatever sounds the most natural. Just going to start talking. Let's go for it. I came up with the idea for this when I was reading a book called She's Gone. It's by David Bell. And in one of the beginning chapters, the main character talks about uh, the name of the high school that he goes to is actually also the uh, person who invented the stoplight. Just, just mentions that. I sort of have a plan for it, but you know, we're just gonna see how it goes. Obviously, I'm gonna go off of your feedback too, if anybody has any, so we're just gonna see how uh, how it evolves. So if you're listening right now, it's my first episode, you probably already know all of the things I'm about to say, but in the off chance that I'm reaching somebody's ears who doesn't know me, my name is Shelby, I live in Alaska, I love to read, and I'm really excited to do this and start this podcast because my plan is to talk about a lot of the things that I like to listen to that I'm really interested in, which is sort of anything morbid, peculiar, curious. If I hear something like that, my interest has already peaked. So I plan to sort of cultivate a community of people who are also interested in those things and we can share those topics and enlighten each other and also just, I just feel like I can't get enough of it. (laughs) So uh, in general though, sort of the plan for the structure of the show, I'd like to try to do a book review once a month, um, at the very least, if I haven't finished a book in a month, because I'm gonna be realistic with myself. I'm at least gonna be talking about the book once a month that I'm reading, um, you know, and uh, we'll go from there. Um, And then also in that episode and in the other episodes as well, um, it'll just be a lot of topics related to the book in some way. And then, you know, in the episodes where I'm not talking about a book, it'll just be about all things morbid, peculiar, and curious, like I said. I do have a little bit of a topic warning for this episode. There's some discussions of these topics. Car accidents, loss of family members, child abuse, sexual assault. This podcast, I would say, is probably not recommended um, for young children. Talking about the book, She's Gone by David Bell. So the book is about a 17-year-old kid. He wakes up um, uh, in the hospital on the night of homecoming, or I think it might actually be the morning after. And he essentially has no memory of the night before. The last thing he remembers is some things earlier on in the night at the dance. Everything after that is a mystery. Um, But I'll read part of the plot on the back. Uh, Hunter has no memory of the crash and his shock turns to horror when he is told Chloe's blood has been found in the car, but she has disappeared. Back at school, his fellow students taunt him and his former best friend starts making a true crime documentary about the case, one that points the finger directly at Hunter. And just when things can't get any worse, Chloe's mother stands in front of the entire town at a candlelight vigil and accuses Hunter of murder. So yeah, obviously we know they come out swinging right off the bat in this, of course. And um, I'm gonna go ahead and read the first chapter because I mean, I was hooked right away and who doesn't want a little 
I mean, these are real pages, baby. Listen to that. This is not a Kindle, okay? So, this is actually not chapter one titled. It's titled Video One. Because Hunter, throughout the book, records a series of <laughs> what he thinks are videos that are going to help him and sort of just, you know, makes his situation worse a lot of the time because he's just drawing more attention to himself. I push the red record button. I've never made a video like this. Never tried to talk so openly to strangers. Icy sweat trickles down my back. I don't know what to say or how to begin. My face beams back at me, pale and thin from the time I spent in the hospital. I wear a small white bandage on my forehead and I'm still feeling the effects of the concussion. Bright lights make me wince like a vampire exposed to the sun. Same. <laughs> If I move too quickly, I get nauseated, and my ears won't stop ringing. It's time to talk. My phone is recording, and I can't just sit here staring. I almost turn it off, shut it down. But I need to talk. I need to get this out. Hi, I say, before realizing how simple that sounds. My name is Hunter Gifford. I'm 17 years old, a senior. I don't know, maybe a lot of you already know who I am. I guess everything that has happened has been in the news. That's why I've stopped looking at my phone, or talking to anybody, or maybe they've stopped talking to me, I'm not really sure, but it has the same effect. Normally, I like to write things down to make sense of my life, but I haven't been able to write since the accident. I just stare at the blank page and nothing comes out, so I decided to give this a try. I clear my throat and watch the red light. My face looks even whiter than when the video started, if that's possible. I remind myself to keep talking. I'm making this video because of all the things that happened that night, because of the accident, and because of my girlfriend, Chloe Summers, hasn't been seen since then, a whole week ago. She was in the car that night, but no one has seen or heard from her since. I guess I should back up. I think she was in the car that night. She should have been. We've been dating. We went to homecoming together. I try to swallow again, but I can't produce any spit. We went everywhere together, so I assume we left the dance together, but I don't know for sure. Because of the accident and what happened to my head, I see myself point to the bandage. My movements look awkward, but I don't want to stop and start over. If I stop, I may not start again. I don't remember the accident. I don't remember much of that night. There are holes, blind spots I just can't see, and that means I don't know what caused the accident or what happened to Chloe. The police told me we drove into a tree in dad's charger and somehow I ended up at the hospital. The truth is, no one even knows how I got there. The police think a good Samaritan found me dazed, wandering on the side of the road and dropped me off, but Chloe was gone. Everything she had with her, her purse, her phone, even her shoes was still in the car, but no Chloe, gone without a trace. That's what they keep saying on the news. My mouth is dry and my lips look like cracked pottery, but I need to finish. So I'm hoping someone out there knows what happened. To Chloe, I mean. Everyone is worried. Her parents, her friends, her teachers, me. If you know, just call the police or message me or tell a teacher or somebody because she's somewhere, right? And she might be hurt. 
She might not remember anything, just like I don't. And she's probably scared or confused or cold or completely out of her mind. The next part makes me nervous. I've thought about leaving it out. It's really personal. Everybody thinks people my age just spill everything out all over social media, but I'm not like that. But it feels right. It does. And, Chloe, if you're seeing this, well, I don't know what happened that night. <laughs> I don't remember. I really don't. But I remember that I love you. I pause. I don't even try to swallow because I can't. And I want to know where you are and that you're safe. I just want to know that more than anything. Even if you don't want to see me or date me, I, I just need to know that you're safe. I take a deep breath. The red light blinks back at me. I should probably smile. My whole life, people have told me to smile more. Smile when I have my picture taken and smile when I meet a stranger. But I don't like smiling that way because it feels weird and fake. My skin feels itchy, my limbs stiff. I don't want to smile, but I want to look concerned, worried, or whatever I'm supposed to be. But I don't know how to do that either, so I end my spiel. Just let me know, okay? I push the red button to stop recording. Maybe you can see why I was hooked. <laughs> um, I found this book to do an incredible job of keeping you in the moment. There was a really good sense of, I guess, atmosphere is the word. You know, I've, I often felt like I was seeing through the main character's eyes, which is always, I mean, that's awesome. You know, it's immersive almost. So uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this book. Um, they do a really good job of pulling your attention towards who you think it is, you know, just like any good uh, mystery, thriller, whatever you want to call it. Um, there are a few things I caught myself doing as a true crime fan, analyzing certain characters' behaviors or things that they did. I, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but there was something that happens with one of the other um, frequent characters that I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> he's guilty. And he wasn't guilty in the sense that I thought he was, but well, you know, you should read the book and find out for yourself because it was fantastic. Um, but I just think that's funny because the more that I watch true crime and whatnot, I catch myself analyzing people's body language in shows or, you know, just through reading stuff and, and whatever. And it's <laughs> just kind of makes me laugh. There's actually a review on the back of the book that says readers will be dying for answers until the final shocking twist, which I must say at first, I was like, well, that's kind of lame because everything that I read up until that point, I'm going to know is obvious. There's obviously a final twist, right? So um, I got to say, though, I didn't see it coming somehow still. So I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe you guys will see it coming. I am a little embarrassed. I found out after reading it that it's actually a young adult novel. Um, I don't know. I'm a young adult, right? When do you age out of being in that young adult novel category? <laughs> Whatever, it's nice to give the brain a break, right? Um, no, but really, this book, I, you know, I would have paid more than $5 for it, for sure. <laughs> um, I want to read some of the other books by this author because he apparently has written several books, and this is his first young adult novel. Um, so... 
I would like to read some of his other stuff because if this was so captivating to me, I can only imagine what something that's, you know, structured maybe a little better uh, will do. So, you know, uh, David Bell, shout out. Thank you for the good read. Um, I really, <laughs> I didn't know how much to talk about of the book because, of course, I don't want to completely spoil it, but the ending is really messed up. But you can tell that the author clearly is a true crime fan himself because I feel like the way that it broke down, not only in the way that they investigated it, but also in the way that the truth came out and what the truth was, it was like, oh my gosh, of okay, of course, you know, it was just so duh because it's not as like crazy and mysterious as you want it to be. Sometimes it's truly just a really disappointingly you know, brutal truth. So that's, <laughs> it was, you know, stayed true to that, um, which I, I guess I appreciated, you know, not totally glamorizing murder and whatnot, because that also happens a lot in true crime, which is really unfortunate. I think that, you know, being into this sort of thing is fine, but it, it does kind of walk a line of, if you're not careful, you're going to be glamorizing the people that have done these atrocities. Whereas I try to go about it from a point of like, this is for the victims. We, we talk about these things and we learn about these things to raise awareness and support for the people that suffered them, not for the awe of the people that committed them. But, you know, um, I would love for you guys to read it. Um, I, of course, have that Instagram account at the rainy book nook, and I'm going to be posting uh, a post about this episode so we can talk about it in the comments, you know, if you read the book, um, or you can email me at the rainy book nook at gmail.com. I want to know if you guys figure out the twist before I did, because I swear I will feel like I'm on top of it, and then something just totally blindsides me like that. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it might just be me. The book I am reading next, uh, it's one I actually have started, is Misery by Stephen King. A lot of you have probably, I said a lot of you, like I have a lot of listeners. <laughs> Maybe a girl can dream. Um, if you like Stephen King, I'm sure you've read that book. Maybe, maybe not. I haven't. Um, I, I'm trying to get more classics under my belt, so it's also been a few months since I've read a Stephen King book. I really, I really enjoy the structure of a book when the chapters are really short and there's like 500 chapters because it makes me feel like so good at reading, you know? I'm like, oh my god, look at me, I'm reading, I read 50 chapters last week. <laughs> so I haven't read very much of that one, but uh, I'll be sure to give a nice little update on the next episode, let you know how I'm liking it. So, as I mentioned, um, when I talked about why I started the podcast, I wanted to do some research on who invented the stoplight, just because uh, Hunter mentions that the name of his high school is the Garrett Morgan High School. Sparked that idea for everything, so, you know, I, I feel like I'm gonna have a very fond attachment to this book. So, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to do some research because I love, I love to learn. I love to learn about all the, anything, you know, throw it at me. And I was like, you know what? Something I guess I never thought about 
the invention of the stoplight or, you know, the origin of it. Um, I guess I was expecting one person to be responsible for it since he says the name of his high school is named after the inventor of the stoplight, but how naive of me. There were a lot of great minds and a lot of trial and error that went into the invention and the evolution of the traffic light. One of the most consistent things with inventions that I always notice is that the first version is always the roughest, right? I mean, that's just, I feel like that's the way that it should be. <laughs> but it sparks a competition amongst humanity to build on that rough version and improve. That's certainly the case with the stoplight. So I think it would be fun for anybody listening to go ahead, I'll wait a little bit for you to guess the, uh, the first traffic signal, like when did that happen? Okay, you guys might've been pretty spot on, but I was definitely not when I first guessed. Um, the first traffic signal was installed in London in 1868. Yeah. Obviously nobody was driving cars around London in 1868, so what did they need them for? Horse-drawn carriages. Of course. They had a huge problem with overcrowding in the streets due to droves of pedestrians trying to get places alongside all the carriages. John Peak Knight, who was a British railway manager, wanted to try to do something about that. He drew inspiration from an existing system called semaphores. These were gas-powered signals used on the railroads at the time that using small arms that extended outward would signal to a train whether they were free to pass or if they had to stop. So how was it adapted for the carriages? In this adaptation, during the day, the arms would signal stop and go, but at night they were illuminated in the same fashion we know today, using a green light for go and a red light for stop. However, these were not automated. A police officer was required to be stationed near the semaphore to operate it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I hear the phrase gas-powered in the Victorian era, and uh, I know nothing good is coming from that. That being said, although it was a success at first, there was a gas main explosion one night just a month after the first semaphore signal was installed, and the operating officer was badly injured. So immediately scrapped that concept. Four decades later, the race to the patent office began. In the early 1900s, several patents were filed as people tried to put their own spin on the existing concept. Let's talk about a few of those. In 1910, uh, I'm probably gonna pronounce this wrong, Ernest Serene, Serene? I know, it looks, it looks like one of those. In Chicago, Illinois, patented what is considered to be the first automatic traffic signal. Uh, how it worked was that it had two arms, stop and proceed, that rotated on an axis. I tried to look up like how effective that was for traffic. Uh, I couldn't find how effective overall it was or how much it really improved uh, congestion. Um, but making my own guess, I would say that I'm sure it was better than no signal at all. Uh, without a doubt. In 1912, a man named Lester Wire, who was on the police force in Salt Lake City, Utah, was appointed head of First Traffic Squad. At the time, the traffic squad was 
directing traffic by hand on the streets, which as you can imagine is probably not the safest way to direct traffic. Lester's solution to that problem was a traffic signal that would be stationed in the center of an intersection. This device, which looks a lot like a giant birdhouse, had four sides that the lights shone through and were operated by a police officer who would switch the direction of the red and green lights to direct the flow of traffic. Unfortunately, this was never officially patented. Lester's invention stayed pretty much where it started. I'm gonna jump ahead to uh, the whole reason I started this, a man named Garrett Morgan. When I first read that, I didn't know if it was something that the author just kind of threw in there. Um, or if it was actually true, and it is true, and Garrett Morgan is actually uh, a very, very interesting person. Garrett Morgan was born in 1877 in Kentucky to Sidney Morgan and Elizabeth Reed, who were both former slaves. Garrett Morgan spent the majority of his life learning, patenting, inventing, uh, opening his first business, which was a sewing shop, in 1907 receiving his first patent in 1912, and shortly after, in 1913, he started a hair product company. What started as a respirator patented by Morgan actually became the first gas mask. He was the first uh, African-American person to own a car in Cleveland, Ohio, apparently. Garrett Morgan was a force to be reckoned with, to say the least. Uh, and he continued to invent despite going blind from glaucoma in 1943 until his death in 1963. So he was blind for the last 20 years of his life and was still inventing. So I feel like I have no excuses for anything anymore, you know? In 1923, he patented an electric automatic traffic signal, which sort of looks like a cross. It's a T-shaped pole with three positions. Um, this was the first signal to introduce the concept of stopping traffic in all four directions and then indicate who is permitted to go using the stop and go on the top of the device. I'll make sure to include a picture uh, on the post episode post on Instagram. This device was a hit because it could be produced cheaply uh, and was not too difficult to install or maintain. He sold the patent to General Electric for $40,000, which yeah, I adjusted it. Today, that would be about $700,000, so he cashed out pretty good. Uh, the 1930s saw the introduction of pedestrian signals into traffic lights, and over the last hundred years, the traffic light has definitely continued to evolve. Jumping now to modern day, there's a really interesting video done by the BBC that highlights how it started um, and how the signals are today. According to Glyn Barton, who works for TFL or Transportation for London, over half of London's traffic lights today are controlled by a central computer. Uh, about 4,500 of them are smart traffic lights. These lights use detectors in the road to take information back to the central computer, which then channels that information through an algorithm uh, that decides how those lights should change. These traffic lights are able to link together as well to ensure that the flow of traffic actually makes sense. I loved learning about that. So now we're gonna switch over into what I would say are some not so fun facts about car accidents. Most car accidents actually occur within three miles of the home. I feel like that is so terrifying. 
Another reason to never leave the house though, am I right? feel like that st statistic maybe applies more in, in bigger cities versus somewhere where I live. You know, of course, if you live in a big city and you're getting onto a interstate a few minutes after you leave your house, I mean, it makes sense that that would happen. I don't foresee myself getting into a car accident within three miles of my house. While all car accidents pose the presence of immediate danger, of course, the most dangerous type of car accident, which claims the most lives, is what is referred to as off-the-road crashes. Just like the name says, these types of crashes are when drivers go off the road and crash into another object like a tree or a pole of some kind. Of course, this isn't always the case, but the cause of these accidents tend to originate from lack of awareness of surroundings like being drunk or texting. Couple of not so fun facts about drunk driving. Around 10,000 people die every year from drunk driving. That equals 29 people every day or about uh, a little over one an hour. Um, drunk driving is actually a factor in one in three deaths on American roads. Um, Vermont posted the fewest deaths between 2009 and 2018 at just 186. Texas had 13,000. 592 deaths in 10 years. Really, really sad. So good job, Vermont. Good job. I'm really curious. I wonder, ooh, I wonder if it's that Vermont maybe has an older population. I feel like Texas has a lot of college kids and just really love to party there. I've never been to Vermont, can't speak for that. Something tells me maybe there's an older crowd there who enjoys, you know, breakfast and coffee just a little bit more. So since pretty much the other massive component of She's Gone um, is memory loss related to the accident, I was really interested to learn about real life cases. I found a bunch of articles about it, of course, um, but I will say the one that took me for the biggest ride was a New York Times article about a Netflix documentary directed by Ed Perkins called Tell Me Who I Am. I'm super glad I watched it because it was a really well done film. Um, the documentary is about twin brothers, Marcus and Alex, having a very revealing conversation. Alex, at a much younger age, had been riding his motorcycle one day when he had a terrible accident. I think he was 18 years old. Although he was wearing a helmet, the helmet apparently came off during the accident and his head hit the ground, causing him to suffer a coma that would last three months. And when he woke up, they knew he was gonna have some brain damage, but they didn't know to what extent. Um, and when he finally did wake up, uh, it was determined that he had regressed in age mentally by about 10 years. When Alex woke up surrounded by people, the only face he recognized out of all of those people, which were people that he knew apparently, was his brother Marcus. His mother was hysterical, apparently asking him over and over and over and over, do you know who I am? I'm your mother. Do you know who I am? Over and over. Kept telling her no. Uh, he was also in a state of disbelief himself, like what the hell is going on? Obviously the dude was in a coma for three months and just woke up and the only thing that he knew was his brother. He recalls uh, on the car ride home asking his mother where they were going. And when she said they were going home, he's like, okay, I'm with a stranger. I have no idea where I'm going, but I'm being told that this is my house and this is where I live. I can only imagine how freaky that is, like just having to trust that everyone is telling him the truth. And of course, trust is the key component in all of this. 
On top of that, he had retained some major brain damage. He went from being an 18 year old with, you know, his whole life ahead of him to mentally being about nine or 10 years old with also no memory of anything at all. Marcus got to work on more or less rehabilitating him. His father was apparently extremely distant to the point of not even visiting him when he was in the hospital during the coma. His mother naturally struggled with the concept of her son just not knowing who she was. Marcus taught him the basics again though, like tying his shoes or once they eventually got past those sort of things, they stepped it up to riding a bike and this only bonded them more. Alex really relied on Marcus to help him navigate starting over. He claims he started feeling more comfortable and mentally aged very quickly in just about a month, um, aging to middle teenage years. So this opened him up into diving a little deeper, uh, asking more important questions. Who am I really? Uh, Alex said he would give me a photo and I would construct a memory around that of two happy boys on the beach when he's talking about uh, Marcus showing him pictures of a family vacation. Please store that this what I just said about the photo on the beach just to kind of sidebar for a second Marcus was showing Alex or they were finding pictures I think and Alex was asking questions about them and Marcus was answering those questions so every memory uh, to him was majorly impactful Alex had nothing to guide him but Marcus so they were quite a team they would do everything together and developed a system for Alex, uh, where before they were going to someone's house, Marcus would sort of give uh, a rundown for Alex of who was there, um, what they looked like, and what their names were, so that he didn't have to have that conversation every time. Like I said, it sort of took that uncomfortable feeling away. I guess, you know, the trust thing comes back into that because he's got to trust that Marcus isn't going to give him, you know, misinformation. I guess that's something that I would definitely worry about is that you're feeding me the wrong information. So, but I do think I'd want someone to do that for me. So at this point, you know, Alex has no reason not to trust Marcus. So that's what he does. Earlier on, um, Alex explained that Marcus had told him they grew up in this very privileged lifestyle uh, and that their parents were from aristocratic households and they meant something and had a good upbringing. And despite all of that though, uh, they were forced by their parents to live in a shed on the property. They were not allowed to come and go. They did not have a key to the front door. That doesn't sound like a super fun and privileged life to me. They, you know, these restrictions really conflicted with the view that Marcus had painted of their parents having this beautiful, elegant life where they were socialites that threw parties and brushed elbows with very important people. And they did, but well, we'll get into that. He didn't, he never depicted a picture of anything other than perfection. So, you know, not that they ever had anything to hide. At the end of his father's life, though, on his deathbed is when the cracks in Alex's vision of his life through his brother's eyes would start to show. Their father called them into his study and asked for their forgiveness for his actions during their lives. Alex was apparently a very sweet and agreeable boy. And of course, in his mind, he had a perfect childhood. So he's like, yeah, of course I forgive you. Like, but apparently Marcus is not able to keep the facade any longer. And he says, no, I will not forgive you before exiting the room. Way to blow your cover, dude. Like, I don't know. It, I, I still don't really, I mean, I obviously finishing it, I understand why he said that, but at the same time, I don't understand why he said that if the whole time he had been making it seem like their life was perfect. Their dad would die a few days later. So, you know, over the course of the next 
few years, Alex actually got really close with their mother. And I think this meant a lot to both of them because of course, you know, Alex's father just died and now all he's got are his mother and his, his brother. Unfortunately though, after five years, their mother would also die of cancer. And so at this point, Alex and Marcus were, I think 32 is what they said. And Alex really had nobody left now, except for Marcus. But now Alex is seeing two times with the death of both of their parents that Marcus is not aligning with him emotionally like whatsoever. So like I said, the vision fed to Alex was that their parents were grandiose and not seemingly deserving of the cold shoulder on the deathbed. After the passing of both parents, while Alex struggled, Marcus seemed to show little to no signs of sadness. So after both their parents passed, they finally had access to the house. Now, they did not have access still until their early 30s. What? I, I honestly wonder how this didn't crack sooner. Okay, so after their parents passed, like I said, they both had access to the house now. It was their house. And after the funeral for their mother, they went home and they got to work on cleaning up the house. Apparently the house was pretty messy, just full of things. Every surface had something on it. Every cupboard was full. A lot of it was trash, but they started finding money stashed in various places, like empty jars and behind curtains and stuff. The next discovery, a giant wardrobe full of sex toys. Marcus continues to be dismissive, telling Alex there's nothing to worry about move on, you know, stop looking at that, that's weird. So they head down into the basement and they find everything from their childhood, you know, shoes, clothes, everything in boxes. Then it gets worse. Then they find tons, years and years and years worth of unopened Christmas and birthday presents. Apparently they never got gifts growing up on birthdays or Christmas or anything like that. So all of them had just been for whatever reason just being deposited underneath the the house alex's image of his parents and his childhood just continue to sit on a shakier and shakier foundation in this basement in a cupboard filled with tons of clothes with a locked drawer inside of a small cupboard so they like quickly search for the key they gotta know what's inside of this when they open the cupboard and they open the drawer they find a photo of them naked with the top portion of the photo cut off, so it cut off their heads. So the photo, like what remained of it, was a picture of them naked from the neck down. At this point in the interview, um, act one ends with Alex unable to continue, needing a break and asking for a cup of tea. And next is Marcus's side of the story. Right out of the gate, he admits to creating a fantasy life and feeding it to Alex, and that it was completely untrue. He realized, I guess about six months after Alex had woken up from his coma, that he had Alex taking everything he said as truth. This means Marcus had a bit of control over the information, right, that he was feeding to Alex. And instead of being entirely truthful and saying, no, we didn't go on family vacations every year, and what he said is that if they did go on family vacations, really wasn't ever with their family. I think they did that one time in those pictures that I mentioned. And then other times it was with other people's families. And you know, that's not normal. So it was hard for him to explain. And he just chose to say, yes, we went on vacation every year. So um, instead of the truth, he told him something exciting, which presumably 
made him feel better about his own childhood. When I said remember that he specifically says, like, he asked me those questions. Marcus blamed Alex for not asking questions in detail, like who did they go on vacation with, as if it was Alex's fault for taking it at face value. That because Alex didn't challenge him, he had no reason to divulge that information. At the point when they found the photo of them in that cupboard was when the whole thing would come crashing down. The web of lies at this moment would just prove too complicated. Alex would confront Marcus about the photo, just comes right out and says it. He says, were we sexually abused or not? Marcus knew he could no longer continue to lie, you know? Um, so the truth had to come out and he did tell him. He just nodded and apparently they did not talk about it after that. It was just, that was the acknowledgement. And then despite Alex like continuously begging Marcus for answers, Marcus would never open up. It's easy to point the finger uh, at Marcus for being a villain and a liar. He goes on to explain that they were sexually abused by their mother until as old as 14. So it sounds like Marcus wanted to save his brother from that. You know, he, he got the opportunity to rewrite life for both of them. He should have told the truth much sooner, but I can honestly say that I feel like what he did in a weird way, like it definitely did come from a place of good intentions. He loves his brother. He, like I said, he saw the opportunity to remove that pain from him. Theoretically, you know, if you tell yourself a lie enough times, it becomes the truth. It can become reality even to the liar themselves. I don't want to sit here and break down every detail of the film because it is extremely graphic. Um, the details of the sexual abuse, um, the things that happened to them, I think you should watch it. It's called Tell Me Who I Am, and it's on Netflix. So like I said, at the start of this film, even still, Marcus had never opened up about the truth of what happened. But there was always this underlying feeling for Alex, and I think Marcus just kind of felt like it had gone away. So the final 20 minutes or so of the film is Alex and Marcus finally having the conversation that Alex always needed. Alex pleads with Marcus to finally speak his truth, saying that Marcus has dictated his entire life and that he owes him this so they can really, truly move on. Never talk about it again. Just get it out. It's too difficult to have a face-to-face -face conversation for Marcus, so he leaves the table. Uh, a laptop is placed in front of Alex with a video of Marcus divulging the ghastly details of their abuse. Um, he tells the extent of their abuse and the things their mother subjected them to. After the video is over and Marcus reappears, they hug and it seems that the bond between twins has overcome the hurdle of an actual lifetime. The 30 years of deceit exposed and simultaneously amended. Alex asks how they escaped it, like how it ended. And Marcus tells a harrowing story of being left by his mother at age 14 with an affluent artist in London who intended to assault him. And Marcus decided when the man was touching him that he was not gonna put up with it. He was leaving. So he escaped the man's house and he got onto a train, uh, rode back to his hometown, walked home, climbed through his window and went to bed. And I guess at breakfast the next morning, his mother was quite surprised to see him. And apparently it never happened again after that. Their mother never abused them. She never touched them. She never took them anywhere. They never even spoke about it again. It was sort of like she was mortified, probably terrified of his capabilities. And she was just, apparently she just never did it again. 
They don't think that their father had actually any knowledge of the abuse. Um, I think their dad was just a freaky freak, and I think they were throwing swinger parties, and their mom was interested in affluent, you know, important people. Like I said, I think I think everybody should watch this. I, well, I think if you can handle the content involved, uh, I think you should watch it, because it really was very well put together and really, really sad. Also, not sad, because they, like, yeah, Marcus is fine not dealing with it, because he didn't want to deal with it, but I... I'm sure he felt better after processing that trauma with his brother. So, you know, it's really cool to know that they still care about each other. So, for the last part of the episode, I have a couple stories from Reddit. This story is um, from Glitch in the Matrix, the subreddit, uh, and it's called, I think I may have died in a car accident in an alternate reality last summer. Uh, and it's by user GardenGoddess83. Last summer, I was driving on the freeway. I was in the car by myself, and it was a clear, sunny day, not a cloud in the sky. There was a semi about 50 feet ahead of me, and a red car a couple car lengths behind me. I looked down for a split second to adjust the volume on the stereo, and when I looked up, a thick fog had rolled in, and the semi in front of me was on its side, sliding sideways towards me, fast. I knew I was about to die with absolute certainty. I felt panic, but also this crushing devastation that I wasn't going to be there to see my daughter grow up. I have never felt anything like that before or since. Blind terror, overwhelming sadness, the knowledge that this was the end and grief because I wasn't ready. I opened my mouth to gasp or scream or something. I must have blinked in that moment because suddenly it was sunny again. The semi was upright and driving normally, still about 50 feet ahead of me and the red car was still a few car lengths behind me. I was shook. I had to pull over on the freeway to have a meltdown because seconds before I'd been about to die. I just sat in the car for a few minutes in shock. I know what I experienced. I was 100% sober. I have never hallucinated. I am a very sensible, skeptical person, but I cannot explain what happened that day. Premonition? Did I die in an alternate universe? Has anyone else experienced something like this? So a lot of the comments on this one theorize that the writer had actually experienced something called highway hypnosis, which is uh, very similar to the feeling you have uh, when you're driving home and you're like, did I run a red light? I don't remember the last five miles or you know whatever. Um, it's actually a very mild form of dissociation and it, it's really common. Uh, and during highway hypnosis though, or white line fever, Drivers will travel great distances, and despite being fully focused elsewhere mentally, they actually still respond to their local environment and drive safely. So that's why I said it's like when you're driving home and you don't remember your drive home, but you, you know, you're pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I stopped at that stoplight. I think this story, you know, was a lot more intense than just a simple drive that you don't remember. So I'm not sure what happened to this person, if that's true, um, but that is definitely scary. So the next one, uh, this is my favorite. This came from the No Sleep subreddit, written by horror writer Dan Richardson. I couldn't find out a lot about him. Um, I found his Facebook, and it, yeah, it looks like he is just a horror writer and writes some pretty good stuff. My wife died in a car accident four years ago. Now I know her last words. My wife died four years ago. 
She was driving home one night from spending time with one of her old friends when a drunk driver collided with her car at an intersection. Her car went into a spin and crashed into a lamppost. Her vehicle was a twisted heap of metal. But even then, I'm told that she was alive for a few minutes after the crash. She was unable to move, her body twisted and broken, bleeding, knowing that in her final moments, she couldn't ever see me or her four-year-old daughter ever again. She passed before they could remove her from the vehicle. In those four years, I grieved. I cursed. I felt like I wanted to give up, but overall, I knew I had to be there for my daughter. The little girl, Miranda, was my world now. I saw my wife every time I looked at those gorgeous green eyes Miranda has. The thought of her being alone kept me from taking that final step of taking my own life many a time after the tragedy. And because of my little girl, I sought help. It took time and healing, but eventually I got better. I stepped back from the ledge, quit drinking, and shaped up to be the father Miranda needs. I always wondered what my wife would say if she could see us before she died, though. In my dark, quiet moments, I thought of her final minutes. I still have nightmares about it. The curiosity never left me. Tonight marked that four-year anniversary, and I thought of my wife as me and Miranda watched a movie together. The Empire Strikes Back. It's her favorite film. Already it seems like my daughter has good taste. She fell asleep before the end of it, though. She continued to insist she was awake, but I knew she needed sleep. It was well past her bedtime anyway. I took my daughter to her room, tucked her in, and told her goodnight. I closed the door and stepped out into the living room. I noticed the movie was still on, and the climactic scene between Vader and Luke, right at the big revelation. He told me enough. He told me you killed him, Luke cried out from the screen. That's when I heard something to my left. Breathing. Heavy, ragged breathing. But not from Vader on the screen. Something else. I turned to see her. My wife, standing before me. No, that's not true. That's impossible. The TV cried out. I stood stunned in silence. Her body was twisted and unnatural looking. She was wearing the same dress she wore the night she died, faded, stained with her blood. Her once brilliant blonde hair was tangled and dirty, disheveled. Her face was bloated, eyes bloodshot and popping out from her skull. Her skin was as pale as moonlight and her mouth hung slack. I don't want to be alone. She choked out the words. She staggered towards me. I was... Too shocked to scream or do anything but stand in terror. My wife is dead. Was this a cruel joke? No, it, it couldn't be. She took a few more steps forward. I want my family. I want my daughter. She walked past me, towards the hallway, towards Miranda's room. Whatever this thing was, I felt myself snap back to reality immediately. I wasn't going to let it near my daughter grabbed its arm. It was cold as the grave. I could hear her bones shift under my grip as it turned to face me, its eyes unable to quite focus. I don't want to die alone. I'm so lonely, it whimpered. What do you want, Jessie? I asked my wife. She pulled her arm from mine, a sickening crunch. I want my daughter to come with me.
She leaped forward with shocking speed towards the hallway, and I snatched her arm again. I felt her arm pop from her shoulder before she spun around and lunged at me. She knocked me to the floor in an instant, hissing with rage. She tried to raise her dislocated arm to claw at me, but had little success in doing so. I pushed her off me with a kick. I heard her legs snap as she hit the ground. My wife began to weep in pain as I ran to the kitchen and grabbed my knife. There was no blood when I did the deed, and I killed my own wife. The woman I loved, the person who for so long meant the world to me, that person, Jessie, died four years ago. I buried her in the earth and in my tears. Now Miranda was my world, my everything, and Jessie couldn't have her. She couldn't take Miranda to whatever terrible place she came from. The body stopped moving after a while. Thankfully, there was little in the way of blood. My wife's body was disintegrating to ash in my arms when Miranda came out to ask what was going on. She thought she heard fighting. I stood up and turned to face her and assured she was just dreaming. Go back to sleep. Now, I'm writing this so I don't think it was a dream. To prove it's real, the whole terrible thing was real. As she was dying in, again in my arms, she was crying. Blood wept from her swollen eyes, and they managed to turn to look at me just long enough that I could remember the enchanting green color they once had been. She said something to me, something that I will try to forget the sound of. The whiskey I kept stashed away hopefully will help with that. After all these years, I now know my wife's final words. I don't want to die alone. I want to see Charlie and Miranda. Don't let me die alone. That story freaked me out when I read it. You know, when I read any of these things, I think, how oh, that's not true. But in the, like, 1% chance that any of these are true, it's pretty terrifying, right? Guy was a horror writer. That one was obviously not true. But there's some pretty interesting ones on Glitch in the Matrix about stories that people swear are things that really happened to them. And whether you believe it or not, it's definitely fun to read. So, okay, creepy stuff, right? I, you know, I was really thrilled to find all of these things. I felt like all of them were so perfectly tied into, uh, you know, each other in some way. Um, you know, I just want to say thank you again to everyone who has supported this idea. Thank you to everyone who will be listening and sharing. Um, even just one person listening and sharing will mean the world to me. And I know I have a lot of really great friends and family who are gonna, you know, really <laughs> cast me up about this. And I'm just, I'm so pumped to be doing this. So thank you. You know, your support means the world to me. Um, I hope you all have a fantastic day or night whenever you're listening to this. If you have any spooky topics you want me to talk about, any books you want me to read, anything, any feedback, whatever, please send me an email. I have an email, rainybugnook at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on social media where my username is just at the rainy book Um, And I will see you next Sunday.